Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I'd jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. Newscast, the podcast designed to help you fall asleep. Find us on snoozecast.com and follow us on Instagram at snoozecast to find behind the scenes content. If you enjoy our show, please write a review on the Apple Podcasts app. Please know that we read and appreciate every single one. This episode is brought to you by The Frill of Black Lace. Tonight, we'll read the conclusion to The Adventure of the Speckled Band from The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, published in 1891 and written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The first part of this story originally aired on November 4th, 2020, and we rebroadcast it earlier this week. In the first part, Watson tells a strange story that starts when a young woman, Helen Stoner, pays them a visit one morning. In desperate need of their help, Helen's mother had left an inheritance to Helen's stepfather, Dr. Roylott, when she died, with a stipulation that should either of her daughters get married, they would receive an annual income from this fund. Helen's sister died shortly before her wedding, and Helen suspects that their stepfather, Roylott, is the culprit. Helen now worries for her own safety, and Holmes agrees to take the case. Let's get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed.
Sherlock Holmes had been leaning back in his chair, with his eyes closed and his head sunk in a cushion, but he half opened his lids now and glanced across at his visitor. Pray, be precise as to details, said he. It is easy for me to be so, for every event of that dreadful time is seared into my memory. The manor house is, as I have already said, very old, and only one wing is now inhabited. That fatal night, Dr. Roylott had gone to his room early, though we knew that he had not retired to rest, for my sister was troubled by the smell of the strong Indian cigars which it was his custom to smoke. She left her room, therefore, and came into mine, where she sat for some time, chatting about her approaching wedding. At eleven o'clock, she rose to leave me, but she paused at the door and looked back. Tell me, Helen, said she, have you ever heard anyone whistle in the dead of the night? Never said I, because during the last few nights I have always, about three in the morning, heard a low, clear whistle. I am a light sleeper, and it has awakened me. Ah, but I sleep more heavily than you. Well, it is of no great consequence at any rate. She smiled back at me, closed my door, and a few moments later, I heard her key turn in the lock. I could not sleep that night. A vague feeling of impending misfortune impressed me. My sister and I, you will recollect, were twins, and you know how subtle are the links which bind two souls which are so closely allied. It was a wild night. The wind was howling outside. Suddenly, amid all the hubbub of the gale, there burst forth the wild scream of a terrified woman. I knew that it was my sister's voice. As I opened my door, I seemed to hear a low whistle, such as my sister described, and a few moments later, a clanging sound, as if a mass of metal had fallen. By the light of the corridor lamp, I saw my sister appear at the opening, her face blanched with terror, her hands groping for help, her whole figure swaying to and fro like that of a drunkard. I ran to her and threw my arms round her, but at that moment, her knees seemed to give away, and she fell to the ground. As I bent over her, she suddenly shrieked out in a voice, which I shall never forget. Oh my God, Helen, it was the band, the speckled band. I rushed out, calling loudly for my stepfather, and I met him hastening from his room in his dressing gown. When he reached my sister's side, she was unconscious, and though he poured brandy down her throat, 
and sent for medical aid from the village. All efforts were in vain. Such was the dreadful end of my beloved sister. One moment, said Holmes. Was your sister dressed? No, she was in her nightdress. In her right hand was found the charred stump of a match, and in her left hand, a matchbox. Showing that she had struck a light and looked about her when the alarm took place. That is important. My evidence showed that the door had been fastened upon the inner side, and the windows were blocked by old-fashioned shutters with broad iron bars, which were secured every night. It is certain, therefore, that my sister was quite alone when she met her end. Besides, there were no marks of any violence upon her. How about poison? The doctors examined her for it, but without success. Holmes shook his head like a man who is far from being satisfied. These are very deep waters, said he. Pray, go on with your narrative. Two years have passed since then. However, a dear friend, whom I have known for many years, has done me the honor to ask my hand in marriage. His name is Armitage, Percy Armitage. My stepfather has offered no opposition to the match, and we are to be married in the course of the spring. Two days ago, some repairs were started in the west wing of the building, so that I have had to move into the chamber in which my sister died, and to sleep in the very bed in which she slept. Imagine then my thrill of terror when last night, as I lay awake, thinking over her terrible fate, I suddenly heard in the silence of the night the low whistle which had been the herald of her own death. I sprang up and lit the lamp, but nothing was to be seen in the room. I was too shaken to go to bed again. However, so I dressed, and as soon as it was daylight, I slipped down, got a dog cart at the Crown Inn, which is opposite, and drove to Leatherhead, from whence I have come on this morning with the one object of seeing you and asking your advice. You have done wisely, said my friend. But have you told me all? Yes, all. Miss Roylott, you have not. You are screening your stepfather. Why, what do you mean? For answer, Holmes pushed back the frill of black lace which fringed the hand that lay upon our visitor's knee. Five little livid spots the marks of four fingers and a thumb were printed upon the white wrist. You have been cruelly used, said Holmes. The 
the lady colored deeply and covered over her injured wrist. He is a hard man, she said, and perhaps he hardly knows his own strength. There was a long silence, during which Holmes leaned his chin upon his hands and stared into the crackling fire. This is a very deep business, he said at last. There are a thousand details which I should desire to know before I decide upon our course of action. Yet we have not a moment to lose. If we were to come to Stoke Moran today, would it be possible for us to see over these rooms without the knowledge of your stepfather? As it happens, he spoke of coming into town today upon some most important business. It is probable that he will be away all day and that there would be nothing to disturb you. We have a housekeeper now, but she is old and foolish, and I could easily get her out of the way. Excellent. You are not averse to this trip, Watson? By no means. Then we shall both come. What are you going to do yourself? I have one or two things which I wish to do now that I am in town, but I shall return by the twelve o'clock train, so as to be there in time for your coming. And you may expect us early in the afternoon. I have myself some small business matters to attend to. Will you not wait and breakfast? No, I must go. My heart is lightened already since I have confided my trouble to you. I shall look forward to seeing you again this afternoon. She dropped her thick, black veil over her face and glided from the room. Holmes turned to me. He said, It is precisely for that reason that we are going to Stoke Moran this day. I want to see whether my objections are fatal or if they may be explained away. But what in the name of the devil? The ejaculation had been drawn from my companion by the fact that our door had been suddenly dashed open and that a huge man had framed himself in the aperture. A large face, seared with a thousand wrinkles, burned yellow with the sun, and marked with every evil passion, was turned from one to the other of us, while his deep-set, bile-shot eyes and his high, thin, fleshless nose gave him somewhat the resemblance to a fierce old bird of prey. Which of you is Holmes? asked this apparition. My name, sir, but you have the advantage of me, said my companion quietly. I am Dr. Grimsby Roylott of Stoke Moran, Indeed, doctor, said Holmes, blandly. Pray, take a seat. I will do nothing of the kind. My stepdaughter has been here. I have traced her. What has she been saying to you? It is a little cold for the time of the year, said Holmes. What has she 
been saying to you, screamed the old man furiously. But I have heard that the crocuses promise well, continued my companion. You put me off, do you? said our new visitor, taking a step forward and shaking his hunting crop. I know you, you scoundrel. I have heard of you before. You are Holmes the meddler, my friend smiled. Holmes the busybody, his smile broadened. Holmes the Scotland Yard jack-in-office. Holmes chuckled heartily. (laughs) Your conversation is most entertaining, said he. When you go out, close the door, for there is a decided draft. I will go when I have had my say. See that you keep yourself out of my grip, he snarled. He seems a very amiable person, said Holmes, laughing. And with that, Roylott stormed out. Fancy his having the insolence to confound me with the official detective force. This incident gives zest to our investigation, and I only trust that our little friend will not suffer from her imprudence in allowing this brute to trace her. It was nearly one o'clock when Sherlock Holmes returned from his excursion. He held in his hand a sheet of blue paper, scrawled over with notes and figures. I have seen the will of the deceased wife, said he. To determine its exact meaning, I have been obliged to work out the present prices of the investments with which it is concerned. It is evident that if both girls had married... This beauty would have had a mere pittance, while even one of them would cripple him to a very serious extent. My morning's work has not been wasted, since it has proved that he has the very strongest motives for standing in the way of anything of the sort. And now, Watson, this is too serious for dawdling. It was a perfect day, with a bright sun and a few fleecy clouds in the heavens. The trees and wayside hedges were just throwing out their first green shoots, and the air was full of the pleasant smell of the moist earth. To me, at least, there was a strange contrast between the sweet promise of the spring and the sinister quest upon which we were engaged. A heavily timbered park stretched up in a gentle slope, thickening into a grove at the highest point. From amid the branches, there jutted out the gray gables and high roof tree of a very old mansion. Stoke Moran, said he. Yes, sir, that be the house of Dr. Grimsby Roylott, remarked the driver. There's some building going on there, said Holmes. That is where we are going. There's the village, said the driver, pointing to a cluster of roofs some distance to the left. But if you want to get to the house, you'll find it shorter to get over this stile. And so by the footpath over the fields. 
there it is, where the lady is walking. And the lady, I fancy, is Miss Stoner, observed Holmes, shading his eyes. Yes, I think we had better do as you suggest. Good afternoon, Miss Stoner. You see that we have been as good as our word. Our client of the morning had hurried forward to meet us with a face which spoke her joy. I have been waiting so eagerly for you, she cried, shaking hands with us warmly. All has turned out splendidly. Dr. Roylott has gone to town, and it is unlikely that he will be back before evening. We have had the pleasure of making the doctor's acquaintance, said Holmes. In a few words, he sketched out what had occurred. Miss Stoner turned white to the lips as she listened. Good heavens, she cried. He has followed me then. So it appears. He is so cunning that I never know when I am safe from him. What will he say when he returns? He must guard himself, for he may find that there is someone more cunning than himself upon his track. You must lock yourself up from him tonight. Now, we must make the best use of our time, so kindly take us at once to the rooms which we are to examine. The building was of gray lichen, blotched stone, with a high central portion and two curving wings like the claws of a crab thrown out on each side. In one of these wings, the windows were broken and blocked with wooden boards, while the roof was partly caved in, a picture of ruin. Holmes walked slowly up and down the ill-trimmed lawn and examined with deep attention the outside of the windows. This, I take it, belongs to the room in which you used to sleep. The center, one to your sister's, and the one next to the main building, to Dr. Roylott's chamber? Exactly so, but I am now sleeping in the middle one. Pending the alterations, as I understand. Pending the alterations, as I understand. By the way, there does not seem to be any very pressing need for repairs at that end wall. There were none. I believe that it was an excuse to move me from my room. Ah, that is suggestive. Now, on the other side of this narrow wing runs the corridor from which these three rooms open. There are windows in it, of course. Yes, but very small ones too narrow for anyone to pass through. As you both locked your doors at night, your rooms were unapproachable from that side. Hmm, said he, scratching his chin in some perplexity. My theory certainly presents some difficulties. No one could pass these shutters if they were bolted. Well, we shall see if the inside throws any light upon the matter. A small side door led into the whitewashed corridor from which the three bedrooms opened. Holmes refused to examine the third chamber, so he passed at once to the second, that in which Miss Stoner was now sleeping, and in which her sister had met with her fate. It was a homely little room with a low ceiling 
and a gaping fireplace, after the fashion of old country houses. A brown chest of drawers stood in one corner, a narrow white counterpaned bed in another, and a dressing table on the left-hand side of the window. These articles, with two small wickerwork chairs, made up all the furniture in the room, save for a square of Wilton carpet in the center. Holmes drew one of the chairs into a corner and sat silent, while his eyes traveled round and round and up and down, taking in every detail of the apartment. Where does that bell communicate with? He asked, at last pointing to a thick bell rope which hung down beside the bed, the tassel actually lying upon the pillow. It goes to the housekeeper's room. It looks newer than the other things. Yes, it was only put there a couple of years ago. Your sister asked for it, I suppose. No, I never heard of her using it. We used always to get what we wanted for ourselves. Indeed, it seemed unnecessary to put so nice a bell pull there. You will excuse me for a minute while I satisfy myself as to this floor. He threw himself down upon his face with his lens in his hand and crawled swiftly backward and forward, examining the cracks between the boards. Then he did the same with the woodwork with which the chamber was paneled. Finally, he walked over to the bed and spent some time in staring at it and in running his eye up and down the wall. Finally, he took the bell rope in his hand and gave it a brisk tug. Why, it's a dummy, said he. Won't it ring? No. It's not even attached to a wire. This is very interesting. You can see now that it is fastened to a hook just above where the little opening for the ventilator is. How very absurd. I never noticed that before. Very strange, muttered Holmes, pulling at the rope. They seem to have been of a most interesting character. Dummy bell ropes and ventilators which do not ventilate. With your permission, Miss Stoner, we shall now carry our research into the inner apartment. Dr. Grimsby Roylott's chamber was larger than that of his stepdaughter, but was as plainly furnished. A camp bed, a small wooden shelf full of books, mostly of a technical character, an armchair beside the bed, a plain wooden chair against the wall, a round table, and a large iron safe were the principal things which met the eye. Holmes walked slowly around and examined each and all of them with the keenest interest. What's in here? he asked, tapping the safe. My stepfather's business papers. Oh, you have seen inside then. Only once, some years ago. I remember that it was full of papers. There isn't a cat in it, for example. No? What a strange idea. 
Well, look at this. He took up a small saucer of milk, which stood on the top of it. No, we don't keep a cat. But there is a cheetah and a baboon. Ah, yes, of course. Well, a cheetah is just a big cat, and yet a saucer of milk does not go very far in satisfying its wants. There is one point which I should wish to determine. He squatted down in front of the wooden chair and examined the seat of it with the greatest attention. Thank you. That is quite settled, said he, rising and putting his lens in his pocket. Hello. Here is something interesting. The object which had caught his eye was a small dog leash hung on one corner of the bed. The leash, however, was curled upon itself and tied so as to make a loop of whipcord. What do you make of that, Watson? It's a common enough leash, but I don't know why it should be tied. That is not quite so common, is it? <laughs> Me. It's a wicked world, and when a clever man turns his brains to crime, it is the worst of all. I think that I have seen enough now, Miss Stoner. And with your permission, we shall walk out upon the lawn. We had walked several times up and down the lawn, neither Miss Stoner nor myself liking to break in upon his thoughts before he roused himself from his reverie. It is very essential, Miss Stoner, said he, that you should absolutely follow my advice in every respect. I shall most certainly do so. In the first place, both my friend and I must spend the night in your room. Both Miss Stoner and I gazed at him in astonishment. Yes, it must be so. Now let me explain. I believe that that is the village inn over there. Yes, that is the crown. Very good. Your windows would be visible from there. Certainly. You must confine yourself to your room on pretense of a headache when your stepfather comes back. Then, when you hear him retire for the night, you must open the shutters of your window, put your lamp there as a signal to us, and then withdraw quietly with everything which you are likely to want into the room which you used to occupy. The rest you will leave in our hands. But what will you do? We shall spend the night in your room, and we shall investigate the cause of this noise which has disturbed you. And now, Miss Stoner, we must leave you, for if Dr. Roylott returned and saw us, our journey would be in vain. Goodbye, and be brave, for if you will do what I have told you, you may rest assured that we shall soon drive away the dangers that threaten you. Sherlock Holmes and I had no difficulty in engaging a bedroom and sitting room at the Crown Inn. They were on the upper floor, and from our window we could command a view of the avenue gate and of the inhabited wing of Stoke Moran Manor House. At dusk we saw Dr. Grimsby Roylott drive past, his huge form looming up beside the little figure of the lad who drove him. The trap drove on, and a few minutes later, 
we saw a sudden light spring up among the trees as the lamp was lit in one of the sitting rooms. Do you know, Watson, said Holmes, as we sat together in the gathering darkness, I have really some scruples as to taking you tonight. There's a distinct element of danger. Your presence might be invaluable. Then I shall certainly come. It is very kind of you. I saw nothing remarkable save the bell rope, and what purpose that could answer, I confess, is more than I can imagine. Did you observe anything very peculiar about that bed? No. It was clamped to the floor. Did you ever see a bed fastened like that before? I cannot say that I have. The lady could not move her bed. It must always be in the same relative position to the ventilator and to the rope, or so we may call it, since it was clearly never meant for a bell pull. Holmes, I cried, I seem to see dimly what you are hinting at. We are only just in time to prevent some subtle and horrible crime. Subtle enough and horrible enough. When a doctor does go wrong, he is the first of criminals. He has nerve, and he has knowledge. About nine o'clock, the light among the trees was extinguished, and all was dark in the direction of the manor house. Two hours passed slowly away, and then suddenly, just at the stroke of eleven, a single bright light shone out right in front of us. That is our signal, said Holmes, springing to his feet. It comes from the middle window. As we passed out, he exchanged a few words with the landlord, explaining that we were going on a late visit to an acquaintance, and that it was possible that we might spend the night there. A moment later, we were out on the dark road, a chill wind blowing in our faces, and one yellow light twinkling in front of us, through the gloom, to guide us on our somber errand. There was little difficulty in entering the grounds, for unrepaired breaches gaped in the old park wall. I confess that I felt easier in my mind when, after following Holmes' example and slipping off my shoes, I found myself inside the bedroom. My companion noiselessly closed the shutters, moved the lamp onto the table, and cast his eyes round the room. All was as we had seen it in the daytime. Then, creeping up to me and making a trumpet of his hand, he whispered into my ear again so gently that it was all that I could do to distinguish the words. The least sound would be fatal to our plans. I nodded to show that I had heard. We must sit without light. He would see it through the ventilator. I nodded again. Do not go asleep. Your very life may depend upon it. 
Have your pistol ready in case we should need it. I will sit on the side of the bed, and you in that chair. I took out my revolver and laid it on the corner of the table. Holmes had brought up a long, thin cane, and this he placed upon the bed beside him. By it, he laid the box of matches and the stump of a candle. Then he turned down the lamp, and we were left in darkness. How shall I ever forget that dreadful vigil? I could not hear a sound, not even the drawing of my breath, and yet I knew that my companion sat open-eyed within a few feet of me, in the same state of nervous tension in which I was myself. The shutters cut off the least ray of light, and we waited in absolute darkness. From outside came the occasional cry of a night bird, and once at our very window a long, drawn, cat-like whine, which told us that the cheetah was indeed at liberty. Far away, we could hear the deep tones of the parish clock, which boomed out every quarter of an hour. How long they seemed, those quarters. Twelve struck, and one, and two, and three, and still we sat, waiting silently for whatever might befall. Suddenly, there was the momentary gleam of a light up in the direction of the ventilator, which vanished immediately, but was succeeded by a strong smell of burning oil and heated metal. Someone in the next room had lit a dark lantern. I heard a gentle sound of movement, and then all was silent once more, though the smell grew stronger. For half an hour, I sat with straining ears. Then suddenly, another sound became audible, a very gentle, soothing sound like that of a small jet of steam escaping continually from a kettle. The instant that we had heard it, Holmes sprang from the bed, struck a match, and lashed furiously with his cane at the bell pull. You see it, Watson? He yelled, you see it? But I saw nothing. At the moment when Holmes struck the light, I heard a low, clear whistle, but the sudden glare flashing into my weary eyes made it impossible for me to tell what it was at which my friend lashed so savagely. I could, however, see that his face was deadly pale and filled with horror and loathing. 
he had ceased to strike and was gazing up at the ventilator, when suddenly there broke from the silence of the night the most horrible cry to which I have ever listened. It swelled up louder and louder, a hoarse yell of pain and fear and anger, all mingled in the one dreadful shriek. They say that away down in the village, and even in the distant parsonage, that cry raised the sleepers from their beds. It struck cold to our hearts, and I stood gazing at Holmes, and he at me, until the last echoes of it had died away into the silence from which it rose. What can it mean? I gasped. It means that it is all over, Holmes answered, and perhaps, after all, it is for the best. Take your pistol, and we will enter Dr. Roylott's room. With a grave face, he lit the lamp and led the way down the corridor. Twice he struck at the chamber door, without any reply from within. Then he turned the handle and entered. I at his heels, with the cocked pistol in my hand. It was a singular sight which met our eyes. On the table stood a dark lantern with the shutter half open, throwing a brilliant beam of light upon the iron safe, the door of which was ajar. Beside this table, on the wooden chair, sat Dr. Grimsby Roylott, clad in a long gray dressing gown. His bare ankles protruding beneath, and his feet thrust into red Turkish slippers. Across his lap lay the short stalk with the long lash, which we had noticed during the day. His chin was cocked upward, and his eyes were fixed in a dreadful, rigid stare at the corner of the ceiling. Round his brow, he had a peculiar yellow band with brownish speckles, which seemed to be bound tightly round his head. As we entered, he made neither sound nor motion. The band, the speckled band, whispered Holmes. I took a step forward. In an instant, his strange headgear began to move. And there, reared itself from among his hair, the squat, diamond-shaped head and puffed neck of a loathsome serpent. It is a swamp adder, cried Holmes, the deadliest snake in India. He has died within ten seconds of being bitten. Let us thrust this creature back into his den, and we can then remove Miss Stoner to some place of shelter and let the county police know what has happened. As he spoke, he drew the dog whip swiftly from the dead man's lap, and throwing the noose round the reptile's neck, he drew it from its horrid perch 
and carrying it at arm's length, threw it into the iron safe, which he closed upon it. Such are the true facts of the death of Dr. Grimsby Roylott of Stoke Moran. It is not necessary that I should prolong a narrative which has already run too great a length by telling how we broke the sad news to the terrified girl, how we conveyed her by the morning train to the care of her good aunt at Harrow, of how the slow process of official inquiry came to the conclusion that the doctor met his fate while playing with a dangerous pet. The little which I had yet to learn of the case was told me by Sherlock Holmes as we traveled back next day. I had, said he, come to an entirely erroneous conclusion, which shows my dear Watson how dangerous it always is to reason from insufficient data. The presence of the gypsies and the use of the word band, which was used by the poor girl, no doubt to explain the appearance which she had caught a hurried glimpse of by the light of her match, were sufficient to put me upon an entirely wrong scent. I can only claim the merit that I instantly reconsidered my position when, however, it became clear to me that whatever danger threatened an occupant of the room could not come either from the window or the door. My attention was speedily drawn as I have already remarked to you, to this ventilator, and to the bell rope, which hung down to the bed. The discovery that this was a dummy, and that the bed was clamped to the floor, instantly gave rise to the suspicion that the rope was there as a bridge for something passing through the hole and coming to the bed. The idea of a snake instantly occurred to me, and when I coupled it with my knowledge that the doctor was furnished with a supply of creatures from India, I felt that I was probably on the right track. The idea of using a form of poison which could not possibly be discovered by any chemical test was just such a one as would occur to a clever and ruthless man who had had an Eastern training. The rapidity with which such a poison would take effect would also, from his point of view, be an advantage. It would be a sharp-eyed coroner, indeed, who could distinguish the two little dark punctures, which would show where the poison fangs had done their work. Then I thought of the whistle. Of course, he must recall the snake before the morning light revealed it to the victim. He had trained it, probably by the use of the milk which we saw to return to him when summoned. He would put it through this ventilator at the hour that he thought best, with the certainty that it would crawl down the rope and land on the bed. It might or might not bite the occupant. Perhaps she might escape every night for a week. But sooner or later, she must fall a victim. I had come to these conclusions before ever I had entered his room. An inspection of his chair showed me that he had been in the habit of standing on it 
which of course would be necessary in order that he should reach the ventilator. The sight of the safe, the saucer of milk, and the loop of whipcord were enough to finally dispel any doubts which may have remained. The metallic clang heard by Miss Stoner was obviously caused by her stepfather hastily closing the door of his safe upon its terrible occupant. Having once made up my mind, you know the steps which I took in order to put the matter to the proof. I heard the creature hiss, as I have no doubt that you did also, and I instantly lit the light and attacked it. With the result of driving it through the ventilator, and also with the result of causing it to turn upon its master at the other side. Some of the blows of my cane came home and roused its snakish temper, so that it flew upon the first person it saw. In this way, I am no doubt indirectly responsible for Dr. Roylott's death. And I cannot say that it is likely to weigh very heavily upon my conscience.